But God is good. God is good. So I wanted to wrap up the, uh, the sermon series that we've been in over the last several weeks uh, called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And we're going to finish it this week. Uh, we, we've gone from the beginning to, to now what is going to be the end of Scripture, taking a look at how God worked through creation, how he worked through the children of Israel as they were nomads and just had nothing, into the promised land, the time of the kings. Uh, we talked about the sin cycle that continued to play out in Israel's history time and time again that plays into today. When I, two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus and, and the significance of Jesus coming and the many prophecies that were fulfilled uh, through his coming and the way that he proved to the world that he is the Messiah. And, and, and again, how the Bible's broken down into the entire Old Testament is God has a plan, the Messiah is coming. The whole New Testament is the Messiah has come, God has a plan. And, and so it's, it's really all of it pointing to Jesus. But I wanted to look at the early church today and really get an understanding for us about what took place in the early church. And I don't want to just gloss over this because it's very significant. When you think about in a time where there is no Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email, there's nothing uh, to be able to promote something. You know, for us, we want to do something. We put up billboards. We can do Facebook ads and campaigns. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we can promote an idea. But in the time of Jesus and the early church, none of this stuff was around. And so for Jesus to be able to fulfill his mission and then to so inspire the apostles, the disciples, to fulfill that great commission, go into the world, make disciples of all men, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. They begin the church in this localized setting, and it blows up to become the largest movement in the, in the history of the world. To date, there are over 2.2 billion people in the world who worship the name of Jesus. And I, and I think, you know, if, if nothing else, when I look about, you know, you go through the Bible and it talks about all these different gods, all these different gods, these idols, gods and idols, gods and idols. None of them survived, but Jesus is still going. None of them made it. You know, it was like, they, we'll worship this for a while. Oh, that didn't really pan out. Forget that. That must not be a God. Oh, we'll worship this for a while. Well, that's not really working either. That must not be a God. Oh, let's try worshiping this. That's not working. But still, people to this day continue to worship Jesus and say, guess what? He's the real deal. He's the real deal. He's not like some fake God who doesn't deliver on his promises. We don't just cut ourselves and do some crazy worship in order to get his attention. He loves us. He sent his son to die for us. And we are forever changed because of his goodness. But here in the early church, this explosion that took place was centered around a very central idea that we can read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. You know, we call ourselves Family Life Church. That is, in essence, the entire basis of the early church was we are going to be family. And so we read this in verse 42 if you'd like to follow along. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to sharing in meals, including Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe. Everybody say, awe. It's not that kind. It's a different kind. <clears throat> a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, 
the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So here we got the, uh, the secret sauce here. This is the recipe for God's secret sauce for growing the kingdom. He says, we're going to start with a family of faith. Now, I'm, I'm like into ancestry. Anybody ever like research your ancestry, like ancestry.com, or anybody send away for your DNA? I was the closest link to monkeys. It was like, what? That's, it hurts. No, I'm just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I love doing research on that stuff. My, my grandmother was really into it. She, she traced our family name all the way back to the Battle of Hastings in 1066. And, and just, uh, there's like the Massey family crest that you can see. And there are actually uh, castle, the Massey castles that are in England. I hope to visit them someday. Maybe they'll let me in. I don't know. But it's just really neat to, to look at that stuff. And, and so I'm interested in this idea of my family of origin, where it comes from, what it's been through, where it's going. Um, I, I, I love, and, and I'm going to give a little short stealer shout out here. Don't get too excited. Uh, but Jerome Bettis, I love, you know, his father told him when he was a kid, he said, I don't have much to give you except my last name. Don't mess it up. Right? I, and if, I think a lot of us, I don't got much to give you, just my last name. Don't mess it up. But when we came to God... We were transformed and adopted into a new family. And that family of origin, and for some of you, some of you, that family of origin is just like, praise Jesus, I don't have to be a part of that anymore. Right? Because not only is it that history, that lineage of the good, but there are a lot of brokenness and curses and things in our past. It's like, you know what? I'm no longer part of those things because I'm now part of the family of God. And this is exactly what the early church did. They said, we're going to be a family of faith. We're going to be devoted to the apostles teaching the Bible. We're going to be devoted to fellowshipping together, spending time together. How many of you know if your family doesn't spend time together, it's not going to be very healthy? Until you have teenagers, then the more time you spend apart, the happier everyone is. You got to spend time together. You share meals together. Listen, this is free advice for you. If you have children that are living at home, eat dinner together as a family as often as you possibly can because there's something about breaking bread together as a family. All right? I know I see a couple kids being like, oh, mom makes us do that every time. Yes, because your mother loves you. All right? Breaking bread. They fellowship together, and listen, this is so crucial. We can't just pass this. They spent so much time in prayer. They said, listen, there's, nothing's going to come from a movement that we just organize ourselves. I mean, hanging out with each other doesn't change the world. Sharing meals together doesn't change the world. Even obedience to a common idea doesn't change the world. But prayer changes things. And that's what they devoted themselves to. And they began to pray. And they became a family of faith. And then they took a step that probably makes a lot of us uncomfortable. They joined a cult. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But they lived together. They shared their things. They sold their stuff so that other people could have. They just had everything in common. It wasn't like, yeah, you know, I'm sitting over here on my blessed island. And it's great to be me. If you want to visit, you can. They were like, no, I want to sell my island and bless my brother. I have one brother. He looks like me. He is super handsome. And that way, where's Sandy at? I didn't compliment myself. I complimented my brother, okay? Sandy always busts on me. She says I compliment myself far too often, which I don't think is true. I'm extremely humble. <laughs> if my brother lost everything, I would do anything and everything to make sure my brother had a place to live. I would do anything and everything to make sure he had something to eat. 
I would bring his, his wife and his daughters into my home. I would care for them with every single thing that I have because that's my brother. And this is exactly the imagery of the early church, the way that they saw each other, the affection and love that they had for one another was that deep that they were like, we used to be a part of brokenness and nothingness. We who were nobodies are now the people of God. This family of faith is significant and we want to be a part of it. And church, this is going to be what it takes to move us, propel us forward into the future. I'm not saying you have to sell everything and we're going to buy a compound. That's not on the, the, the docket for us to look into. But having the, the common love and concern for one another to see what's going on in each other's lives and being there to be a part of it, getting right down into the midst of it. Maybe you've heard it put this way before, doing life together. We're going to do life together. If you're going through a hard time, I'm going to walk through it with you. If you're celebrating something good, I'm not going to sit back and say, well, why didn't I get blessed? I know none of you have ever done that. It's just me. I'm going to celebrate and be like, I'm so glad to see my brother and my sister getting blessed because that's how good our Father is. In the midst of all of this, there was also great, great persecution taking place. And I want to point this out because this is really important for us to understand in our current culture because how many of you believe we in Christianity are beginning to see some, some oppression, some persecution? Anybody? Yeah, I mean, we're beginning to see the early stages of it. Can I tell you, there has not been a moment in the history of Christianity that has been without persecution. And here's the really good news on top of this. You're going to want to be ready for this. Great times of persecution have always birthed great revival. Every time. It's like persecution, persecution, squash, we're going to stop the church, we're going to crush the church, we're going to get the name of Jesus out, we're going to stop this whole thing, and suddenly the Holy Spirit moves and it blows up and the biggest revival you've ever heard of just comes to be. And I believe that that is still possible, but listen, we've got to understand as we're facing some religious persecution in our culture, and, and just as a side note, I, I don't think it's going to get better. I honestly don't. I don't think that there's a season ahead of us that's just like, oh, you know what? It's going to be, everybody's fine with us being Christians now. They don't hate us anymore. They're not telling us to shut up or sit down anymore. They're totally inviting and welcoming. I don't think that's coming. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. There's going to be a time of persecution and oppression that draws us to our knees and to pray and a revival to, bring out, to come out of that. But this was part of the early church. And one of the primary people who was persecuting the early church was a man named Saul. Saul, who would later become Paul, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Great guy, right? We're looking at him, what a hero, yay! Guess what he did before he got saved? He persecuted Christians. In fact, we read that the very first person who was ever martyred for the name of Jesus, but named by the name of Stephen, while he was being martyred, Saul stood off to the side and held the coats of all the people, and it says that he looked on in approval. That's the way it should be. That's what should be done to people who are calling on this Jesus guy. And that's who Saul was. But in the midst of all of that, God gets a hold of Saul, and he, he brings him to a place that he's basically down on his knees. He blinds him, and God says, hey, stop persecuting me. You're going to be a part of my plan. Then he speaks to a man named Ananias, and he tells him, I want you to go and find Paul and pray for him. Here's what Ananias says in chapter 9 of Acts, verses 13 to 16. He says, but Lord, now listen, just as a side note, I tell my kids, my name is not Butt Dad. Do you want to be Butt Boy or Butt Girl? 
I don't think so. I don't want to be butt dad. We do this, but Lord, right? So I think if God could say it, he'd say, don't call me but Lord. He says, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. It's like, you ever have one of those moments where God says, do something, you're like, Lord, we need to talk, okay? Let's just have a powwow because what you're saying is not adding up. The Lord says, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Right there in this moment, Saul, Paul, got sentenced for nine to life. I'm going to explain that just a little bit here. But he got sentenced from nine to life because it was from this moment on that he's going to spend the rest of his life fulfilling God's plan for him and for the church. Now, I want you to just think about this a second. I mean, how many of you have uh, maybe a family member, a friend, a neighbor who is just like, they're so atheistic, like they want nothing to do with God. Any of you got people like that? Okay. Imagine this afternoon you're sitting down and God just begins to speak into your ear. I want you to go to that person and anoint them as a leader of the church. You're like, okay, God, run that by me again. This dude's an atheist. He doesn't believe in you. That, that girl, like she hates you. When I bring her, you up to her, she gets mad. God says, that there is my chosen instrument. That there is my chosen And church, can I tell you, just as a side note, that gives me such hope. You know, I, I, and I'll say it for myself in my own life, I was in a bad place when God finally got a hold of my heart, and I'm so grateful for that. And I've met so many people, and you know, we all do, that we think to ourselves in some way, that person is hopeless. They will never get saved. They would never, there is no such person that God can't save. In fact, he tends to use some of the people that it seems most astounding to us as his instrument of glory because it'd be one thing for God to be glorified through somebody who's been serving him their entire lives, and he does that all the time. But when God can take somebody who kills Christians, who doesn't believe in Jesus, and transform him and say, I'm going to make this guy the hero of the New Testament to preach the gospel to the world. That is unbelievable. But I wanted to show you a couple of things here, and I hope you can see this on our screens. So it's like the year 34 AD is when Saul is on his way to Damascus. He has this moment where he, he meets with God, and, and he has to uh, come to grips with that relationship. And God says, I'm going to use you. Ananias goes and prays over him, calls him brother. All that happens. So when we read the book of Acts, we can kind of think to ourselves, well, immediately after that, Paul went and he just started preaching and reaching people and laying hands on people and praying for them and miracles happened and all these. In fact, that is not the case at all. So it's 34 AD when that happens. It's not until three years later that Paul ends up back in Jerusalem and he starts preaching and he's trying to teach people about God. But here's the problem. It gets sideways. Everybody gets angry. So the Jewish leaders or the, uh, the Christian leaders have to go to him and say, Paul, you're really stirring things up and you're kind of making a mess. How about you just go home for a little bit and try to work out your own relationship with Jesus and then we'll try this again in a few years. Literally what happens. 
It isn't until the year 46, which is 12 years later for my mathematicians, 12 years after this conversion experience before Saul, who is now Paul, begins to go on his first missionary journeys. And then, after that 12-year period, he spends nine years traveling all over, if you can put up the next map for me here, all over the Roman Empire, which was what you're kind of seeing here. He goes all over the place, and in a period of nine years, travels over 10,000 miles to preach the gospel. Now, I know to us that's only a few train rides and airplane rides, but he had to do the majority of this on foot. And he goes all over the world for nine years, giving of himself. And then you see his last journey, which is in green on there, is when he is finally arrested and told that he needs to go to Rome and stand trial. And guess what? After spending 12 years in the waiting process to become usable by God, after spending nine years going around on missionary journeys all over the known world to preach the gospel, he ends up going back to Rome and being thrown on house arrest in prison for nine years where he writes most of the New Testament. Think about this time period. We're talking a period of nearly 25 years where he is just constantly giving and going and doing and trusting and serving God with all that he has. And you know what happens to him at the end of it all? He ends up standing trial in front of the Roman emperor. He ends up being sentenced to death. And he is killed for the sake of the gospel. Now, i got to think to myself, if I'm Paul, and I have spent... 12 plus 9 plus 9. You got that together? 30 years. I've spent 30 years just trying to be obedient to God. Going where He tells me to go. Doing what He tells me to do. In fact, you can read in the book of Acts some of the things that Paul talks about that he experiences. He says, I've had some troubled times in the midst of trying to serve God. He says, I've been stoned. And just as as a side note here, stoned is not like a marijuana thing in, in the Bible. Literally, my first youth group had a teenager come to me and ask if the Bible was okay with marijuana because she said, I saw that some of the disciples got stoned. I'm not making that up. I, I'm like, I just looked at her and I was like, no, no. Am I on camera? Is there a camera in here? No, no. They, they, they hit him with rocks. That's... It's, so stoning is a terrible thing. I mean, they start with little rocks, work up to bigger rocks until you're getting pelted. And, and that's what Paul says. He says, I have been stoned. I've been whipped. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been arrested. I've been in danger in the city. I've been in danger in the country. I have been everywhere and in all of it. I've been persecuted. I have been harmed. I have never truly been safe, but all of it has been for the sake of the gospel. And then his last words that we have penned or in a letter that he wrote to what he calls his spiritual son, a man by the name of Timothy, a young man who when he first started uh, speaking to Timothy was probably only 14, 15 years old, a young boy that God gets a hold of. And he spends all this time pouring into Timothy and raising him up to be a pastor, the leader of the church. And he writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8. through eight. He says, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. 
the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all. Can you say all? For all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul is using some Olympic terms here as he's talking, competing in the games, receiving a prize. In fact, the crown that he uses there, the word crown there is the, the word that they use for these wreaths that they would make to put on the, the Olympians' heads for winning the prize. And he's saying, just as they run races and compete and do things, he says, I've run my race. I've run my race. I've done what I need to do. Now we're looking at it and through human eyes, we're like, Paul, you're about to be killed. You're about to die. After giving 30 years of your life to ministry and to the, the name of Jesus and the sake of the gospel, you're about to be killed. Like, what a tragic loss. And Paul's sitting there saying, no, I won. I won. And I'm going to stand before God. And just like those people who compete in those silly games in the Olympics, and they get up there on the podium and they get the gold medal. For them, it was a crown. He says, just how they get a crown, the only thing that awaits me now is to stand in front of Almighty God and to have Him crown me as a victor because I won. I won. I'm not losing. Losing my life is not losing. I won because I've got 30 years of ministry and the gospel under my belt in which I have propelled the name of Jesus forward. Two weeks ago when we talked about Jesus, we said, and he came to build a bridge. That was his purpose. He was to build a bridge between us and God. That was Jesus' ministry for us and to us, is that he was going to make a way for us to have close connection and relationship with God. And when he builds that bridge, he, he makes a way for us to have relationship with God that was never available to us before. And now as Paul's life in the early church is coming to a close, he basically comes to the same conclusion for himself. I have spent 30 years following God and living a life that has been devoted to the sake of the gospel. And my life is nearly over and is about to be just poured out as an offering. But I've come to this conclusion, Timothy. My life is just a bridge. My life is just a bridge to take the gospel from one generation to the next. My life, that's all that matters to me. And, and, and I know for us this is really hard to understand because try as we may, we are living in a world that is very materialistic. Can we just be honest with ourselves for a second? We are much more materialistic than the early church. We have a lot of things, a lot of stuff. Our pursuit of the American dream sometimes trumps our pursuit of God's will for our lives. Paul, as he's at the very end of his life, he says, my life has not been wasted. It hasn't been wasted because I shared the gospel. I traveled 10,000 miles and told people about Jesus. I've seen the early church launched. I've seen the name of Jesus going forward. And Timothy, I'm looking at you, young man, and all I can think is that there's a generation that's coming after me, and they're going to be okay. So you know what, Timothy? I won. I won. I'm going to get the crown before God someday because I won. And church, he goes on to say that this crown is not just for him, 
He says it's for all. In fact, I had you say all. It is for all who persist in relationship with God to the end. We say it in so many terms and we try to convince ourselves, but it's difficult. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. You can amass all the wealth in the world and we've watched it happen. Build up an empire and you die and you pass it on to your kids or your grandkids and it's squandered overnight. But there's something about the legacy of faithfulness that endures. There's something about a God-fearing mom, a God-fearing dad, a grandmother, a grandfather, an aunt or an uncle that has made an impact on your life and you look at them and they seem so saintly and godly, but they got it at one point in their lives. They realized it. I'm not here to get rich. I'm not here to be comfortable. I'm not here to experience all that this world has to offer. I know, please hear me, I know this steps on some toes, but this is so important for us to understand. We are not here to experience all the world has to offer. We are not here to be comfortable. We are not here to amass wealth, fame, notoriety. Paul said, I was here. You are here as a bridge for the gospel because this story needs to go forward. And it's going to go forward with you. It's going to go forward with you. It's going to go forward with your kids and your grandkids because of the sacrifices that you make so that the world can know Jesus. As David said, I would not offer a sacrifice to God that's cost me nothing. It costs us something to follow God. But in the end, as Paul sits, knowing that the only thing left for me is death, I'm okay with it because I win. I've won because of what Jesus has done for me. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have made us more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We thank you that no matter what we face in this life and in this world, that we can still have victory because of your son Jesus and what you have accomplished. God, we sang earlier that you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of the sacrifice. You're worthy of the faithfulness that it takes to endure. You're worthy of the perseverance that it takes. But God, if we're being honest with ourselves, there are some times that we don't know that we feel that it is really worth it. We don't know that we're willing to make the sacrifice. We don't know that we're willing to give in, to be generous and loving and compassionate. We don't see ourselves as bridges. We see ourselves as islands. What can I build? What can I amass? What can I have? What can I experience? And God, I pray that you would just begin to challenge hearts all over in this room. Those who are watching us online, God, challenge hearts that this life, this story that's going forward, that the next chapter is ours. We get it. It's been placed in our hands. But the question remains, what will we do with it? Will we build a bridge so that the next generation can know or will we become comfortable and just build an island for ourselves? God, challenge our hearts. As we're in prayer, I just want to ask you, if you're here this morning, 
if you are in a place in your life where you say, you know what, I, I want my life to be about the gospel. I want to live a life that propels the story of God's goodness and mercy and his glory to the next generation. That's what I want. That's what matters most to me. I want to fix my eyes on that. If that's you, can I ask you to just stand? To stand up and say, that's what I believe in. That's what I want to stand for. That's who I want to be. That's what I want to become. I want to be a man of God, a woman of God, who says that I'm devoting this lifetime to the pursuit of the gospel. I'm not going to devote it to myself. I'm not going to devote it to just what I can amass or what's comfortable or what's good for me. I want to devote it to Jesus because there's a generation that needs him. God, I just pray right now for every person in this room willing to take that stand for you and for your glory, for your name. And God, I pray that as they stand, as they proclaim that their lives are going to be poured out for your glory, that you just begin to encourage them and challenge them, God, filling them with the hope of Jesus, giving them the joy and the peace that passes all understanding, not from a lifetime that has amassed everything for self, but a lifetime that has given everything for the glory of God. God, I pray that you would begin to challenge our hearts, challenge our way of thinking. Help us to see, God, that life is so much more than our things. Help us to count it as a privilege, God, that we get to be a part of the greatest story ever told. And I pray, God, that we will push this next chapter into the hands of a generation that needs to know you. And that no matter what we face in this life, we, like Paul, would be able to someday say, I've run my race. I've finished my race. And I've achieved all that God called me to achieve. And whatever it costs me along the way, it's worth it. Because Jesus is worthy of it all. And I thank you, Lord, and I give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Listen, you're going into your mission field, so I'll give you the same thing Jesus gave everybody else. Go into the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all mankind and know that he's going to be with you to the end of the age. Lord bless you, love you. So glad you could be here today. If you are joining us for our Duncan with the Pastors, we'll be over in the cafe shortly. If you need prayer this morning, our prayer team will be up here at the front. We'd love to meet with you, but fellowship together and love on one another.